Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ruthless Crime Podcast. How's your day going? Um, my day is going well, I guess. It's one of those days. Maybe it's like a Monday of the week. I definitely did film this on a Tuesday, though. Um, today, we are continuing our exploration of the 50 States Unsolved series, where we look at one unsolved case from each state. And today, we are looking at Indiana. Um, I just want to add a little preface before this episode starts. Hopefully, um, the audio is somewhat better in today's episode. I got this very, like, fancy mic, and then the audio just turned so crazy. So, I actually did a bunch of research about, you know, gain and all of these different features that this microphone has, and we are going to see if that helps. And then I also got a few little apparatuses off of Amazon. Um, anyways, I don't know much about Indiana, and yes, <laughs> um, this is a recurring theme of the podcast that I don't know much about the states. Um, that does remind me of that one, there's only one race the human race. What about NASCAR? You know, I know that vine and I do have a grandmother that lives in Indiana, but that is about it. So today we have a shorter case. Um, and then this is the case of the Burger Chef murders. This case takes place in Speedway, Indiana on Friday, November 17th, 1978. Speedway is in Marion County and on a map, it is in the most central part of Indiana. So this case has confounded amateur sleuths and professionals for almost 50 years at the time of the disappearance. Like I mentioned earlier, the disappearance was on a Friday night, which may have led to the idea by authorities that the four teenagers had just robbed the safe and left on a Friday night to have fun with friends or party Um, again, given the information that I am about to present later, I think this theory is very unlikely and really just disrespectful to the victims. In case you were wondering, Speedway Burger was a fast food joint, and I say was because I don't think that they're still in business anymore, or, I mean, they don't have any in Colorado. That is the sound of my dog, who is next to me while I make this recording. Okay, um, so Speedway Burger was a fast food joint that tried to compete with McDonald's, so think like burgers, fries, shakes. Um, It was very popular in the 80s and like the Midwest. So our victims are Jane Freed, Ruth Ellen Shelton, Daniel Davis, and Mark Mark Flemons. So Jane Freed, our first person, was born in May of 1958. She graduated from Avon High School in 1976. Jane had been employed for several years at Burger Chef and even gained the role of assistant manager and served in the position for three months. Here is a beautiful quote I found from a person who had known Jane. Quote, Jane was an extremely nice person. As a matter of fact, I still remember people commenting on seeing Jane at work at the Burger Chef in Plainfield. She had a smile and a nice word for everyone she saw. She was well-liked and respected by all who knew her. The fact that she had moved up to assistant manager at the Speedway Burger Chef is demonstrative of her dedication to doing things well. It was such a pleasure to know her. I could also mention that she was beautiful, but you can see that by her picture. She was simply a beautiful person. 
Ruth Ellen Shelton was born in December of 1960. She attended Northwest High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. There, she was a double major in business and math at Northwest High. Friends said that Ruth intended to graduate and go to college. The principal at Northwest said Ruth always attempted classes that, quote, sometimes girls shy away from. She was a very business-like young lady, quote, at the time, friends said that Ruth wanted to quit, even going as far as giving in her two weeks notice before the manager talked her into staying at Burger Chef for a while. I just want to clarify this manager that talked Ruth into staying was not Jane because Jane was the assistant manager. Um, Daniel Davis is our next victim. Um, he was born in September of 1962. Daniel was en enrolled at Decatur High School as a junior. He was interested in film and aviation and reportedly wanted to enter the Air Force after graduating high school. His father described Daniel as having his own dark room and laughing and taking lots of pictures of the family and airplanes. His best friend described Daniel as a, quote, happy guy, laughing and telling jokes most of the time. Mark Flemons was born in December of 1961. He was a sophomore at Speedway High. The principal said his grades were improving and that, quote, he was going to make it, end quote. Friends described Mark as the type of guy that could, quote, get you going, quote, if you were in a bad mood. Mark was also known as a neat and friendly person. At the time of the incident, Mark had worked for Burger Chef for three months. The most tragic part for me is that Mark was reportedly switching shifts with someone and wasn't originally supposed to be working. The day seemed normal, and at 11 p.m., like clockwork, the employees began to close up for the night. We don't know exactly what occurred that night, so I'm going off the schedules for what was supposed to have occurred. Here is the evidence that we have. At around midnight, an unnamed fellow employee dropped by. They were planning on meeting up with one or more members of the Burger Chef crew to party or get together. But anyways, they immediately noticed that something was wrong. The back door of the restaurant was wide open when it was supposed to be locked and shut at all times. Again, he is an employee Sorry, I am working on catching my own biases. They are an employee and they knew that it was supposed to be this back door was supposed to be locked and shut at all times. Upon entering, they found the safe had been completely cleared of all cash. The registers had also been cleared of all cash. The four Burger Chef employees, Jane, Ruth, Mark and Daniel, were nowhere to be found. And this is also supported by Jane's Chevy Vega being missing from the parking lot. Um, a side anecdote here is that my parents, who were born around the time of these team members um, in like the 50s and 60s era, um, said that unless it was a four-door Chevy Vega, because this two-door, which was like the most common model of Chevy Vega, would not have been able to fit all of the team members, which I think is some very interesting insight. Anyways, um, this employee, upon realizing that something had gone horribly wrong, called police shortly after police arrived on the morning of saturday november 18th they found that 581 dollars in total had been stolen again adjusting for inflation that is two thousand three hundred twenty one dollars and nine cents today so that seems like a huge amount but police labeled the amount as evidence for their joyride theory that i mentioned earlier Police wholeheartedly believed that the teens had taken the money to drive around and have fun with. 
So near the safe, police found two empty currency bags, a used up roll of tape, and the previous night's coins. They also found Jane and Ruth's purses, the employees' jackets, and there was no sign of a struggle. Just clarifying recap here, a sign of a struggle could be broken glass, bullets, or any sort of weapons at the scene. So remember that the um, Jane's Chevy Vega that I said was missing from the parking lot? Later, the Vega was found in the middle of town in what crime reporters speculated was an abandoned state. Inside the car, or I guess at the scene of the car, police found that the driver's side door was locked, but the passenger door was not. Ultimately, this was another dead end for police, as nothing was found to indicate where the teens had gone or if they'd even gone of their own free will. On Sunday, November 19th, a couple was walking in the woods on their property about 20 miles away from Burgershack. Um, essentially, they found four bodies in their property. Police were called and arrived to identify the four bodies as the four missing teens. And a terrifying fact is that the missing teenagers were found still in their Burger Chef uniforms. At the scene, police found that Ruth and Daniel had been shot in the backs of their heads, while Jane was stabbed twice in the chest. Another terrifying fact is that she had been stabbed with such force that the knife broke off inside her. So this maniac went to stab her, and when the person came back, the knife broke off. So there was kind of just the handle. That's terrifying. And imagine the amount of force that you'd really have to do that with. Mark's death is also very interesting because he died of asphyxiation. I can't pronounce that. Asphyxiation. There we go. Um, Due to choking on his own blood. So I feel like that's a little bit of a misnomer because yes, he did die of asphyxiation, but from choking on his own blood, but how did he choke on his own blood? It was because he endured some intense beating. So police found that he was beat with a blunt object so much that he began to internally bleed and the perpetrator left Mark on his back and police could only speculate that the perpetrator did this because they knew that he would choke on his own blood. They even speculated that Mark could have survived if he wasn't left on his back. It was determined that the teenagers were killed Friday night, or excuse me, between Friday night and Sunday morning. So just going back to this original timeline, if they're kidnapped around maybe right when they begin to close at 11, then you have between there and Saturday morning for kind of giving them a timeline of when they were killed. Also, a more thorough examination of the scene did not yield any results. So another recap, police have several missing weapons that they're looking for, um, a gun for a gun, a knife handle, and some sort of blunt object that would match Mark's wounds. As all of you know, this case is large. This case and a lot of unsolved cases are largely unsolved due to police mess ups. And being the a cab person I am, let's talk about a few of those mess ups. Firstly, Police arrived at the original scene with the notion that the employees chose to disappear and rob the store themselves. And 
they weren't trying to find evidence and then putting that evidence together. They were only looking at the evidence which supported their theory. So just clinging to this belief that the employees chose to disappear themselves was completely a mess up because they disregarded a lot of other evidence and they kind of just clung to this idea that, oh, the kids are joyriding. They will just be back tomorrow and they'll just say sorry and everything will be okay. Even though like, two thousand plus dollars stolen today like that that's not you know you are everything's okay just go back to work that's definitely like jail so it just it was very sus anyways um they also did not take enough photos of the burger chef restaurant and police later admitted that they had to take a recreation or staged photos of the scene so these photos that were taken later were not even in the burger chef where this happened which is insane to me let's see the police also did not take any evidence or enough at least evidence from the crime scene and i think the arguably worst mistake that they had made was that they allowed Burger Chef to open for business the day after the crime. So any evidence, because, you know, they didn't collect any evidence, any evidence that might have been there was gone. Um, so moving along in our timeline, later a witness comes forward telling police that they saw, quote, the witness said they saw a car with two men in it just before the restaurant closed. One of the men had a beard and the other was clean shaven with fair hair. Police put a lot of resources into finding these men. They did sketches and clay busts, all to no avail. When a man with a beard was found bragging about the murders at the jar at a bar, I assume nearby, I don't know where this bar is, but police jumped on him. They tracked down this man and brought him in for questioning. However, at the time of questioning, the man had shaved his beard and the witness was unable to identify him. Okay, separate tangent here, but if someone drastically changes their appearance and mannerisms when being brought in for questioning, um, side side tangent, I am pretty sure Ted Bundy would do this. Um, but in 90% of the cases, if they're drastically changing their appearance and mannerisms, I'm just going to say they did it. And yes, there could be a coincidence, but it's too strange. He's been caught bragging about the murders and just happens to shave his beard before being brought in for questioning. I just don't buy that coincidence. And I believe, um, as NCIS star Leroy Jethro Gibbs always says, coincidences don't exist. Sorry, this was my mistake. I chose a very uncomfortable position to record this podcast in. So anyways, um, continuing in the timeline, the case essentially became cold until 1984. In 1984, an inmate at the Pendleton Correctional Facility confessed involvement in the crime. According to the inmate Donald Forrester, Jane's brother was involved in the local drug trade and had owed a third person, um, for the sake of ease, I'm going to call this third person X, a lot of money. So X then hired Forrester to threaten Jane so she would go back to her brother and tell him that she had been threatened and this would scare the brother into paying back his debts. Apparently, Mark threatened to start a fight with Forrester and his accomplices um, and they hit Mark over the head and then he fell Who and then 
he, so he's falling at this point and he hits his head again but this is on a bumper so kind of just think that he was hit once and then on the way down he gets hit again accidentally I would assume anyways um so they thought he was dead and so they kidnapped the other employees and carried out the killings. Forrester was able to provide police with details that were not public information. And side thing about this, I think it's so sketchy, but police routinely keep information from the public so they can verify who is a killer and who is a clout chaser. So he knew um, that the knife handle had been broken off for Jane's stabbing, which was not public information at the time. Um, after further investigation of Forrester's claims, police spoke to an ex-wife of Forrester who claimed that, quote, Forrester drove to an isolated spot in the woods, approximately where the four bodies were later found. She had been in the car with him and watched as he went around the area, picking up a number of 38 caliber shell casings. And according to Indianapolis Monthly, later that day, after returning home, Forrester's ex-wife said that he flushed the shell casings down the toilet. So I kind of have to go into a little explanation of what a septic tank system is. Um, basically, I feel like this is very common in the Midwest, but they have septic tanks, which are these little tanks that you don't have pipes that take your waste water and waste substances out to the street instead because it's such a rural area they'll just go down to a septic tank um, if it's very rural it'll be a septic tank just for you but if you're in a community it will most likely be for you and the rest of your community and then that's emptied out every once in a while yeah septic tanks are so nasty they really are but anyways um Forrester at the time his house that this occurred at was a septic tank so anyways after gaining a warrant to search the septic tank of the house that was owned by Forrester investigators found 38 caliber shell casings corroborating the wife's story however in 1986 the media leaked that Forrester was close to being arrested and when the story got back to Forrester he recanted all confessions and refused to talk to the police he died in 2006 so let's get into the theories so we will be examining um, three so the theories. first theory is that the teens took the money to party so if you've been paying attention this is a variation of the first theory that the police proposed so the evidence supporting this theory was the cash missing from the safe and registers about 200 2000 excuse me 300 dollars today no coins were taken you know if you're gonna take money from work um why would you take coins there was no sign of a struggle possibly indicating that it was an inside job or the people knew their attacker um, so evidence disproving this theory. If you couldn't tell from my attitude towards this theory all throughout the podcast, I think that this theory is kind of just makes a mockery of the memory of these teenagers who had their whole lives ahead of them. And I just think this theory is really disgusting. And the fact that and, and, and it misled the case in such a terrible way that it's really disrespectful to continue to hold up this theory. But for the sake of my podcasting format, let's go into the evidence disproving this theory. Firstly, why was the purses and jackets left? 
Um, Secondly, how did they end up dead? Is that like a coincidence? Third, why was the back door left open? If they left of their own free will, presumably they would have keys, so they would just lock up the store. Fourthly, the teens were all on a roll, top of their class type kids, so why would they do this? This theory doesn't have a motive, and again, it just makes a mockery out of the memory of these teens that were killed in a very tragic event, so I think this theory is really stupid. And last theory is, why would the co-worker show up? Because remember his theory, no, excuse me, their theory, or the, the co-worker showed up because they believed that you know, he wanted to check in. He was like, what's, what's going on? Something's wrong. Um, why aren't they coming out to party with me? But why would the coworker show up? Because if they were already gone, wouldn't they be with the coworker? So I'll side with the police, uh, who later, I don't think they've issued a public apology, but they've laid, they've moved (laughs) farly away, fairly away from this theory, which for good reason. Anyways, the only concrete piece of evidence here proving is this theory is that the cash was missing. So on my rating system, if 10 is that this definitely occurred and one that there is like no, like hell would have to freeze over before this occurred, I will give this a one out of 10 because these were upstanding teens who had futures and there's no motive. There really is no motive and the evidence is all circumstantial and weak. Okay, let's get into theory two which is definitely interesting. I don't know how much I believe it, to say the most. Let's get into theory two. So this theory revolves around the last kind of chunk of evidence that I was telling you about. So following my podcast format, the evidence supporting this theory is that Forrester knew about Jane's inside details about Jane's stabbing, which the public would not have known. So this guy definitely has some sort of relation, but I don't know if he's telling the truth even though I'd still like to know how um, Forrester knew about this stabbing. He also posits that the kidnapping occurs, which lines up with evidence at the scene. Um, the 38 caliber bullets that were found in the septic tank of his former house, because I think he was already in jail at this time, so obviously he's not living there. I don't know the caliber of the weapon, and honestly, forensics was probably so primitive at that point, they could not figure out the caliber of the weapon. But I guess if police put so much theory into this that it had to be a 38 caliber um also backs up the witness statement i think he looked a fair bit amount like the person the witness described okay evidence disproving the theory the main thing here is that he recanted the confession once the media leaked and um so i think we all kind of know those stories about like what happens to child predators when they go to prison i don't know how but the inmates kind of you know figure out like there's that common myth that the inmates will figure out oh this touch this this person you know touch touches little girls um but so i don't know maybe i just i don't understand like why that would change his prison treatment because it's not like little kids these are teenagers Um, so I don't know if maybe that's why he like recanted, but it just seems very suspicious. 10 out of 10 sus. Also, we cannot verify if Jane's brother was in on the local drug trade, like, um, like Forrester says, but if he is anything like Jane, honor roll, upstanding citizen, I sincerely doubt that this happened. And if they were just there to threaten Jane into getting her brother to pay his debts, I understand their theory about Mark, 
um, their story about Mark, that Mark put up a fight, you know, being the chivalrous young man he was. And then they were like, we're not doing this and just hit him. And then he fell like he hit his head on the bumper on the way down. So I, I understand that part. But why was money taken? That doesn't seem to back up the story. Also, really going into it, I don't think Mark's injuries are consistent with the story. The story posits that Mark put up a fight and got hit in the head and then fell on a bumper. So I guess it could explain why the personal style crimes were done on Mark and Jane. Um, Some crime profilers believe that using a gun execution style is less personal, you know, because they're not looking at you. It's a gun. It's very impersonal. Um, But it's less personal than stabbing and beating someone to death because you are doing those with your bare hands or at least you're doing it with a lot more like personal control on it than you would be doing with a gun and like a gun is very like quick and efficient and stabbing like it takes a lot of time to stab someone and with the amount of force that you are breaking the knife off inside of them um and then also police estimated that there was some sort of rope being used on mark so i guess i'm just very confused about the recanting portion of the story And I read somewhere that many investigators don't believe this theory because of the recanting. So just because of the recanting, because it's so sus. Um, I'm going to give this a five out of 10. It seems so weird that he recanted, but I really do want to know how he knew those inside details. Um, Because I understand like the 38 caliber things, you know, he could have just known that those were in a septic tank. But yeah, this this whole theory is really sus. And our final theory that we're going to discuss today. Oh my, we are already at 25 minutes. So I guess this episode wasn't as short as I said it was going to be. So the evidence supporting this theory is, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, the third theory is that th- this was a random attack gone wrong. So the evidence supporting this theory is that money was taken, showing that maybe this was intended originally on being a r- robbery. Um, I really think the fact that there was kidnapping, um, I think that that, excuse me, I think that this backs up the fact that this is a random attack gone wrong. Um, Let's see, there's also kidnapping and the fact that this backs up the witness statement. Um, So maybe Jane and Mark both put up fights. I I don't know. I guess they they seem more like they would. But I really don't know if that actually explains it because, you know, all of these people wanted to live. None of them were like suicidal. They all enjoyed life. So I guess you can't really say, I don't know, you know, maybe this is why there were more personal or impersonal because, you know, I feel like they they all had such bright futures ahead of them that I feel like they all wanted to live and they all probably could have put up a fight. Um, No coins were taken. Obviously, if you are robbing um, the equivalent of a McDonald's in the 1980s, you're not going to take the coins and the personal effects of the employees, such as purses and jackets that were left at the scene. Um, I cannot think of any evidence clearly disproving this theory, but there are some elements of the supporting evidence that could be disproving. So if you couldn't tell, um, I'm going to rate this theory a nine out of 10 because I think that there probably could be a personal motive, but this seems most likely, especially just with the Donald Forrester recapping, recounting, recanting his confession. It just seems so sus to me. And it's like, why, why would you do that? Like there, there doesn't seem 
to, to be a, f- a clear reason. So that was our case for today. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next time for a new episode of the 50 States Unsolved series. If you do like this episode, please leave, a f- leave us a five-star review. For more information on this case, please check out, quote, They Could Have Been Anyone's Children from the Indianapolis Star and The Untold Truth of the Burger Murders, Burger Chef Murders by Grunge Magazine. Thank you so much. I love you guys. Bye.